We're uh, glad that you're with us this morning. If you're visiting, especially, thank you for being with us. Um, Last week, we enjoyed meeting together at the beautiful Fort Williams in Cape Elizabeth. It was a gorgeous day. Jordan, of course, boycotted that meeting because we didn't hold it in a parking lot. Um, And uh, come on, Jordan, I thought I'd get a laugh out of you at least. Little inside joke. Um, Danny spoke to us about baptism and its role in our individual stories as part of the larger story of God and our story together as God's children, as uh, the offspring of Abraham. One thing that struck me as Danny spoke was this connection that we have to the promise of Abraham and through Abraham to us that predates the coming of Moses and the law. It's not the law that brings us into God's family. It's not the law that helps us live into the promise of God. And as I pondered this idea, I had this visual relationship. Uh, th- this kind of popped into my head. It's not, not the be-all, end-all, but this relationship between the promise and the law. Thank you, Liz, for helping me with this slide. In a real important sense, the law is outside of the continuum and of the promise. The promise was given to Abraham. It was God saying, I'm going to do this. And then the, the law came and God said, well, if you do this, I will do that. Now we know that the law is good. In Psalm 19, King David says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's blameless. In Romans 7, the apostle Paul declares that the law is holy, the commandment holy and righteous and good. And in Matthew 5, the Lord himself said, don't think I have come to abolish the prophets or the law. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But even a perfect law could never save anyone. Paul tells us in Galatians 2 that if righteousness could have come by a law, there would be no need for the cross. Our righteousness didn't come and could not come by the law. And to echo what Danny said last week, our being brought into the family of God did not and could not have come by law. Our righteousness and our membership in the family of God came only by way of the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, uh, as Joel mentioned, we're going to be looking at a passage in 1 Corinthians. And in it, we will read that the power and wisdom of God is revealed in Christ and Him crucified. The cross is the wisdom and power of God, and therefore it's the foundation of our lives in Him and in the world Apart from the cross, we are without life and utterly powerless. Let's read together here in in 1 Corinthians. If you want to follow along, I'm not going to read all the verses, but the passage um, begins in verse 18. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Picking up in 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then down to verse 30. And because of 
I'm filling this in from what we skipped. God's choice of the weak, the foolish, and the lowly. Because of that, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The second chapter of Corinthians, Paul continues the thought, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with some kind of lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and much trembling and fear, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you came to earth as a man. You were crucified, dead and buried. And God, your Father and ours, raised you from the dead. Give us this morning spiritual insight into the mystery of the cross on which you died and out of the cross that you call us to take up each day. Help us to see, give us eyes to see how such an event, which was the epitome of loss and what appeared to so many to be complete failure, help us to see how that is the power and wisdom of God. In the name of Jesus, amen. I became a Christian in 1970, about a month after I turned 17. I was about to go into my senior year of high school. My mom bought me this simple little cross, a little silver cross. I wore it around my neck on a chain. Uh, it was about an inch and a half tall and about an inch wide, if my memory is correct. So it wasn't huge, but it wasn't tiny. Uh, when I was 19, I traveled to Europe uh, with a buddy of mine, high school friend, uh, for almost four months. And uh, after a week in England, we went over to the continent. We bought a van on the streets of Amsterdam and spent the next three months driving around uh, 10,000 miles through 12 countries living in this van. All of this was an exercise in culture shock. Uh, two young Americans in countries that, you know, other than England, didn't speak English. Uh, no cell phones, no internet. I know that's a shock to some. Uh, that entire three and a half months, I'm 19 years old. I talked to my parents once when I called home because I needed money. Um, calling home was an exercise in, you know, that, that was a project. Um, the most different country that we visited, as far as culture, shock, and feeling out of place, was Morocco, which is an Arabic Muslim country. You probably know where it is. It's a former French colony. It's right across the Straits of Gibraltar, south of Spain. And as it happened, we were there on Easter. Um, we spent about a week driving around Morocco. And one day, as I was walking around the market area in the city of Fez, which is kind of down in the central part, it's one of the four imperial cities, a young man walked up to me and grabbed my cross and said, what is this? And I, you know, I was like, well, that's an unusual way to start a conversation. I, I, I told him I was a Christian. I told him it was a symbol of my faith in Jesus. I don't remember the rest of the conversation, but I, I remember thinking how different it was to be in a place where someone might not even know what the cross symbolized. Now, it's possible that he actually knew and he was just challenging me, or maybe he really didn't know. I don't know. But I sometimes wonder if we in America don't have as rich of an understanding of the cross ourselves. In the passage we read a moment ago, 
Paul four times referred explicitly to the power of God and always with reference to the cross or the crucifixion. Verse 18 said, the word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. In verses 23 and 24, he said that he preached Christ crucified, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who are called. And in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he said that his unveiling of the gospel to them wasn't just an intellectual exercise, but a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that our faith might rest in the power of God. Well, how is it? This is sort of the question of the day for me. How is it that the power of God can be so entirely linked to an event that looks so much like nothing but failure, loss, and disaster? We might explain that question away in the case of the Lord Jesus. We admit we don't fully understand it, But those of us who have come to believe in him sort of accept the crucifixion as a big part of the story about how God saves his creation. But it ought to be important to us for another reason. Because we all, all of us, also experience various events from time to time that are marked by failure, loss, and disaster. Some of us more than others. Is the power of God, the power of the cross, also linked to those experiences? Do we even believe that God has anything to do with them? Or do we blame them on bad luck, Satan, or especially if we're evaluating the misfortune of someone else, bad choices? Well, let's start with looking at how the cross revealed the power of God in the life of Jesus and then how it might do the same for us. I, um, I like watching movies, and one sort of, it's not really a genre, but I like movies about real events and real people. And uh, one of my favorites over the years in that regard is Apollo 13, which is this story in early 1970 of bringing this disabled man spacecraft uh, back from the moon with determination, ingenuity, and duct tape. Um, These movies sometimes leave leave me thinking, you know, that could never really happen in real life, except that it did I mean, and that's, that's partly what I love about a lot of true life stories. They're like, this is better than fiction. Um, and maybe a poor analogy, but the story of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is really preposterous in so many ways from an earthly point of view. First of all, his birth. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, uh, considers the birth of the Lord Jesus to be the most unbelievable event in the history of humankind, that the living God would become a human, that the eternal creator of everything became a finite creature. Just, it's crazier than a furniture maker becoming a chair. You know, it's just, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And then there's this death. How can God the Son, the eternal uncreated one, die? How can this be? And on top of that, how can the eternal, perfect, sinless God the Son take on sin, the sin of the whole world, even become sin, in the process of defeating sin. Crazy stuff. Now, the Lord died a horrific death on a cross. The Romans crucified thousands of men this way in that period of history. Crucifixion was meant to torture and to shame and to humiliate and thus deter other people from committing crimes or rebelling against Rome. It was a shameful way to die. To the Jews, it represented the curse of God on you. 
And the suffering, this suffering that he had hurt endured on the cross, though, vastly exceeds what happened to him in his physical body. Scripture tells us that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And as I mentioned a minute ago, and it's in 2 Corinthians 5, he actually was saying this. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. As the Lord hung on the cross, we get a sense of even his abandonment by his father. Why have you forsaken me? Bearing the sin and the shame of the world on himself, he became odious even to his father as he hung on the cross. And that is, it's unimaginable to me except that it's true. When it was over, Jesus was dead. He was taken from the cross. He was covered with aloe and myrrh and other things and wrapped from head to toe for burial. He was laid in a tomb. And then another astounding thing happened. About 40 hours after he died, he walked out of that tomb alive. How is that possible? But that is the amazing story. That's what happened. That's what's captivated our hearts and our minds and our lives. But not everyone likes this story. The Greeks, as we read, saw it as foolish, and the Jews saw it as weakness. The 12 disciples didn't even like the cross. The Lord repeatedly told them that he was going to Jerusalem to die. Moreover, that, he told them that's why he came. He didn't come to be a moral teacher or a faith healer. He didn't come to wrest political control from the Romans. He came to die on a cross, this shameful way to die as a savior. If we had been there, we would not have viewed this as a winning strategy any more than they did. It didn't make any sense. One time, Peter or Jesus was very clear. He was talking about going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter pulled him aside, posed him, said, no way. What Peter really opposed was the cross, the idea of the cross. It didn't make any sense to him at all. Jesus was on this cultural upswing at the time in the minds of his closest advisors. They expected him to save them by taking power. And it wouldn't hurt that they'd be in great positions to capitalize on his kingship. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we don't like the idea of the cross either. But the cross is the hinge point of history. It's the basis of the gospel. It's a basis of all that it means to be the children of God heirs of the promise of Abraham and the disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, Christians. Well, what happened on the cross? I'm only going to briefly go over a few highlights because I know that we know these things, most of us, but it's good to remember them. He died for my sins as the lamb of God, a sacrifice, so that I could be forgiven of my sins, so my debt to God could be paid for all of my rebellion and rebellious acts toward him. Jesus won a great victory on the cross in spite of appearances over sin and over death. He's the Lord and King. He sits on a throne right now, alive. As the risen Lamb of God, he delivered me from my, not just my sin, but my sinfulness my sinful condition, and from the power of sin over me by taking me to the cross with him. That's what uh, we've talked about in the last few weeks. And having died and risen and ascended, the person of Jesus today, as we just sang, his other, another name of his is Emmanuel, God with us. He's now present in us 
living in us as spirit. So the cross is about forgiveness, redemption, victory, and new life. But all of that comes at this great cost. As we've seen in the life of the Lord Jesus, the cross is also about suffering, loss, and death. But this is its power. It is about new life out of death. The power of the cross is that through the cross, death died. The cross is about suffering and death of Christ that we might live. Not just that we could keep living the same old life that we have, forgiven but still enslaved to sin, but that we have died with him on the cross, that we have been raised with him to walk in newness of life, a new kind of life, a new form of life. Our death and our suffering, our own experience of the cross, as we receive it and pick it up daily, is also part of the story. You might recall these words of Paul in Philippians 3. It says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of everything. All things, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And hear this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. To follow the Lord Jesus is an invitation to suffer with Christ that we might more fully experience his resurrection life in us, in our daily lives. Another way to say that might be that to follow Christ, this is the title of a book I read years ago, to follow Christ is to not waste our suffering. We've talked about how Christ has already died once and for all time for all people and that we have already died in Christ and on the cross in Christ, and we were risen up to new life with him. Our sins are forgiven. We've been delivered from the power of sin and death. We have been given life that allows us not to be slave to sins. But in another very important sense, the cross is still before us, ahead of us in myriad unique ways, all designed to help us die to self that we might live a fuller life in Christ. In addition to telling the disciples that he was on the way to Jerusalem to die on the cross, he also told them that the cross was in their future as well. Now, this wasn't just a prediction of the martyrdom of most of the apostles. History tells us that John died of old age. It was a prediction of the power of the cross to deal with the flesh so that the followers of Jesus might live by the Spirit. We don't like this aspect. I don't like this aspect of the Christian life. My flesh does not like the cross. But the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. It's essential to Christ being formed in us. It's essential to our being conformed to the image of Christ. It's the path to an ever deeper and richer life in him. What do you do when suffering comes into your life? I tend to whine and complain. I become a lot less pleasant to live with. I discover that I'm not as nice as I'd like to think that I am. In short, my self-centeredness is brought to the fore. This is when I see, this is when we see, 
that what Paul said in Colossians is true. The law is powerless to save us. It is useless in dealing with fleshly self-indulgence. And self-indulgence doesn't mean going out and drinking and chewing and going with girls that do that thing. It's about this thing in me that rises up that makes me a very unpleasant person to live with. That's the indulgence of myself. The law cannot train me out of selfishness. I need the cross. This is when, hear this, this is when we have the opportunity to fall on our face before him and cry out, Lord, I cannot love you. I cannot love my neighbor as myself. No amount of living by the law will help me. Rise up in me, O risen Christ, that having died in you, I might walk in the Spirit, in the newness of your risen life in me. It was by the Lord's finished work on the cross and our faith in him that we were saved when we believed. And it's by his risen life in us that we continue to work out our salvation and are empowered to live a life of love. Now, here's a couple of important points that I want to highlight. Even though the Lord told his disciples, take up your cross daily, you and I do not engineer the cross in our life any more than the Lord Jesus did. Likewise, we don't arrange for our own resurrection any more than he did. To take up our cross daily is not an invitation or exhortation to go out and find the cross, to look for and pursue suffering. It will come to you, and you know this because you've seen it already in your life. It shows up. Now, it's an invitation to humbly receive and embrace the cross when it comes, just as you would any other gift that you get from God, the ones you like better, frankly. He loves you and is for you in all things. He really wants to see more of Christ, his son, in us for our sake. He wants it for his sake, too. That's his purpose, but he wants it for us. Here's a second point. That is not to say that your loved one or you got cancer or got in a terrible car wreck or lost your job as a gift from God. I am not saying that. The rain falls, Bible says, on the just and the unjust. If we read biblical history, if we read world history, if we read the Psalms, we read the newspaper, we reflect on our own life and the lives of those that we love, we know, we know from just looking around that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. But wherever cancer and car wrecks and lost jobs and every other assault on our happiness comes from, Paul reminds us in Philippians 1 and 2 that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is working in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God, God who began a good work in us, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Believe it or not, I hope that this is encouraging. The power of the cross is this, that in spite of all appearances, The cross defeats death and paves the way for resurrection and for life. Not a restoration of the old life, of the flesh, 
but a brand new kind of life that came to earth in Christ and is now in us as he dwells in us in spirit. As difficult as bearing the cross can be when it comes, I hope we'll be encouraged even when it comes in ways that feel unbearable to us. God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ could not love us more or be more on our side. But the Father's good purpose for us is that Christ be formed in us, that we be conformed to the image of Christ, to the glory of God. And that happens as our personal encounters with the death of self, personal encounters with the cross, continue to make way for the life of Christ to be revealed more fully in us and through us. Starting next week, we'll be preaching a series for the next five weeks on certain things that mark the church, that mark a people constantly being renewed in Christ. And we'll cover things like worship and prayer and the unity of the Spirit, that we might love one another and witness to the world, and that we you know, might be reaching out to the world with proclamation and compassionate works of mercy and justice. The basis of all the things that we're going to be talking about is the cross of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. It is through the cross of Christ that the promise of Abraham finds its fulfillment in Christ, Abraham's seed, the Lamb of God. So as we start this new series next week on our renewal in Christ, let's remember that the cross, it is the cross that is the wisdom and power of God, and that our renewal comes through the finished work of Christ on the cross and our humble receipt from God of our daily encounters with the cross to the glory of God. Amen. As we turn now to this table, Lord, that reminds us of your cross, what you paid on the cross for us, we worship you, the Lamb of God, once slain for us. We worship you, the risen lamb on a heavenly throne. Lord Jesus, you are the A and the Z. You're the beginning and the end. You died that we might have life to the full. And we cry out with the angels, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. As we come to this table, we ask you to help us Help us to humbly receive the cross as it comes our way. And help us to grant you access each day to our lives as you seek to conform us to the image of Christ until Christ is formed in us. Amen. The communion cups will now be handed around. If you're new with us, there's a a real thin little plastic gizmo on the top top that's clear that you peel off to get to the to the bread and and then you can peel the rest of the top off to get to the juice let's all hold on to the the two elements and take them together as i read through uh, a passage in first corinthians 11 for i received from the lord what i delivered to you that the lord jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body actually we're going to wait because it looks like half of us don't quite have this stuff yet so let's hang on 
So these are Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. Again, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this to remember me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. Brothers and sisters, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.